This morning's reading comes from Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, so the breaking of bread and the prayers, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and all had things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. So there is this undeniable cry in every human heart for connection. There's this longing to know fully and to be fully known. And when we're deprived of this human connection, things get pretty ugly pretty fast. There was one study done by the American Psychological Association and it said this, there was significant evidence linking social social isolation with depression, poor sleep quality, impaired executive function, accelerated cognitive decline, poor cardiovascular function, and impaired immunity at every stage of life. A lack of social connection heightens health risks as much as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So there you go. (laughs) Or if maybe pop culture is more your thing, the effects that isolation can have on a person were vividly depicted in the movie Castaway. Has anybody seen it? Where the main character is shipwrecked on this island far from any human contact for four years. And if you've seen this movie, you know that he suffers severe depression, distortions of time, distortions of perception, even going so far as to personify his volleyball, Wilson, there he is, in some companion of sorts just to just to dull the demons of isolation. The need for connection is undeniable. But the question I want to ask this morning is why we need community in the first place. And for that answer, we have to go back in time. Before humans walked the earth, before there were animals or trees or even stars or planets, before all of that, there was God. And he wasn't alone, and he certainly wasn't lonely. Some have said that God created man because he was lonely and just needed some company, but nothing could be further from the truth. When we open up the pages of scripture, we see that there's this mystery and wonder of a God who is three distinct persons in one glorious divine being, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And you can jot down if you're taking notes verses like John chapter 1, verses 1 and 3, or John 17, 5 to explore this more. And so this first community was complete. The Father was glorifying the Son, the Son loving and submitting to the Father, the Spirit making much of the Son, this perfect, beautiful dance, a union of dependence and love. There was nothing self-serving about this community. 
There was nothing dutiful. There was nothing manipulative. And there was certainly nothing lacking in it. Did you know that at the heart of the cosmos is a community of devoted love? And it's out of an overflow of this loving fellowship that the triune God begins to create. In Genesis 1, we see that he speaks and the blazing sun and the stars appear. He speaks and the planets begin to take shape and the trees and the flowers sprout and the mountains burst through the lands. He speaks and the sea begins to fill with life. The air with birds, the land with both massive and microscopic creatures. And just when an odd creation thinks that it can't be any more awestruck, God begins to form his masterpiece. From the dust of the earth, like this master potter, God forms a man. And he forms him in his own image. A work of art that's made to reflect both the nature and the character of his creator. And after this mind-blowing act, God looks at Adam and he says, of course to no surprise, it's not good for man to be alone. Well, of course it's not good for him to be alone. He was made in the image of the divine community. And so God creates a woman and Adam is stunned. Before him, he sees this, this other being created in the image of God with the very same desire for connection, with the very same desire for, as, for communion as himself. And then in Genesis 2, 25, we read this. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. And yes, this can be taken literally to mean that they were physically naked, but I really think it goes much, much deeper than this. They were seen. They were exposed. They were known and all the while without shame. Adam and Eve's relationship to one another was marked by this unfiltered presence, this heart-to-heart connection. So just think about it. There was no pretending There was no spin to make themselves look better than they were. There was no hiding and remarkably still no shame. And not only with one another, but there was also this unfiltered presence with their creator, with God himself. So I want you to stop for just a minute and imagine that this is your current reality. To finally let down your guard. And to feel no need to put your best foot forward. To be confident that people really know you and they still love you. There's this unfiltered, unashamed presence with your creator and with those around you. Connection at the deepest level. Knowing and being known without fear, without any shame. Is there not something inside of you right now that just sort of wakes up at the possibility of this being true? And listen, this was God's original design for mankind. This is what you were made for. This is where our longing for community actually comes from because you are made in the image of a communal triune God. 
well, this, this beautiful picture of community doesn't last. We move on to Genesis 3. And the communion that Adam and Eve had with God is broken when they choose to doubt God's good intention towards them. Taking, taking the way of independence, taking the way of self-will, they disobeyed the one who made them and sin sweeps in, fracturing both the vertical relationship between man and God and fracturing the horizontal communion between these two people. And so what did this fallout look like? Just a few verses later, we see that humanity, when sought out by the creator, they go and hide. Genesis 3.8 says this. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Then they sew fig leaves on their body in order to cover up the shame that they feel. They need to hide from each other, and they certainly feel the need to hide from God. And when they're confronted about the truth of what they've done, they begin to make excuses. They blame one another. They blame the circumstances outside themselves. They self-protect. And so the story of humanity goes on. Even, Even a cursory read of the Old Testament makes it painfully clear that the broken and self-centered relational dynamic between people is perpetuated again and again and again. There seems to be just no escaping it. The very next story, you might be familiar with this. The next story we read in, in Genesis reveals the continued relational fracture. Sibling rivalry. It ends in murder. The murder of Abel by his brother Cain. As the population grows, an independent humanity that's set on distancing themselves from their creator by building this tower called Babel, they're dispersed in a hundred different directions, further alienated from one another, further alienated from their creator. And the story continues from Abraham to Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, the growing tribes, the entire people of Israel. There's this common thread running throughout nearly every story of the Bible, relational turmoil, relational fracture. The vertical relationship between man and God is chock full of unfaithfulness, mistrust, rebellion. And the horizontal relationship between people further descends into division and rivalry and murder and anger and deception. It's bad. But pause. Let's zoom out for just a minute from the biblical story and let the current reality of relational conflict and brokenness sink in. How often do we treat relationships transactionally? We give, but only because we know the other person then feels obligated to give something back. When the relationship stops meeting our needs, well, we feel no problem calling it off. Or maybe we've even grown to see the church in this transactional way. You know, if the church can help me, then I'll stick with it. As soon as, I, as soon as I'm let down, I walk away. Or maybe you've tried to open up to others. Like, you've really, really tried. But you were taken advantage of. And you were hurt in the process, and so you stopped trusting. You became cynical. We're friendly, but all the while, friendless. 
this rugged individualism and independence, it seems safer, so we'll gladly acquiesce to the ways that technology has enabled us to isolate all the more. I'm going to get a little personal here, okay? Netflix keeps us cocooned in all night, each night. Our phone has become an easy out from the face-to-face interaction. We're more connected than we've ever been, and yet we've never been more disconnected. Oh, and we look at the news, and we only see conflict after conflict. This is such a far cry from the pure and life-giving fellowship that, we, that was experienced in the garden. So let's, let's return again to the biblical story. So if you're following the story of, this, uh, of the Bible so far, you might be pretty disheartened by it all. But let's just say you continue to read and you happen to stumble across the second chapter of Acts. You might just be completely perplexed by the jarring contrast with what we've been reading so far. All right, so the story picks up again. Let's read this together from Acts chapter 2, starting in 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. And all who believed, they were together, and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Whoa, (laughs) what just happened? This is a dramatic departure from the relational mayhem we've seen up to this point. Why the sudden shift? If the entrance of sin into the world fractured to some degree all vertical and horizontal relationships, then then what can account for this self-sacrificing hospitality, this generosity, this this commonality, this joy, this, this sense of wonder and devotion to God and to others that we see in this passage? And for that answer, the context is everything. And listen, listen, the answer means everything for us today because in many ways their story is also our story. So if you rewind just a few verses before this stunning picture of community, you'll see that the context is Jerusalem during the feast called Pentecost. The city is filled with people and 120 of Jesus' followers are gathered in the upper room. The Holy Spirit comes down. They're filled with power And it's at this point that the apostle Peter stands up and he begins preaching a message to the crowds who were around. Verse 37 says that those who were listening were cut to the heart by this message. They repented of their sin and this small band of 120 Christ followers turns to 3,120 overnight. And it's this group that becomes the community that we just read about in verses 42 through 47. 
my goodness, the, the message that Peter gave that cut them to the heart and transformed these strangers into a tight-knit family overnight, this must have been a pretty special message. <laughs> and that it was. The fuel of this fire was the message of the gospel of Jesus. The message that Jesus, that second member of the Trinity, had personally entered the brokenness of the world to repair that relational fracture between man and his creator. And he did it by living the perfect life that we never managed to live. His relationship with his father was one of love, of submission, of trust, of joyful obedience. His relationship to, other, to the people around him was service, compassion, truth, faithfulness, proximity. And when this perfect God-man was put to death on the cross in sinful man's place, he absorbed the curse of separation. He absorbed the curse of separation into himself that was caused by sin in the garden. He broke the power that sin has to fracture our relationship with the Father. He allowed himself to be cut off from his intimate fellowship with his Father so that we could be brought into the same intimate community that he had with his Father and with the Holy Spirit since before time began. That's what was happening. 2 Corinthians 5.19, it really states the heart of the gospel in this crystal clear way. It says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. In Christ, God tore down the relational barrier between us and him that had been insurmountably erected after the fall. The vertical relationship restored. But is that all that was restored in Jesus' death and resurrection? What about this horizontal rift that we've been talking about? Listen to Ephesians 2.13, it's beautiful. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought us peace. He united Jew and Gentile into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. This is a message of reconciliation on every front. This was the gospel message that cut them to the heart. It was the driving force behind this new community of love. And listen, the gospel... This same gospel message is the only fuel that can give this kind of life to our community here today. So I want to invite us just to turn the corner and let's go back to Acts 2, 42 through 47. We're going to notice just a few characteristics that, that marked this new gospel birthed community and also see how these things might speak life into our community today. So if you would, go ahead and just open up your Bibles, uh, or if you have an app, go to Acts 2, starting in 42, as we won't have the passage on the screen for the next little bit. So the first thing you'll notice that Christian community is marked by is a particular set of very formative practices that are done together. 
we're going to call them liturgies. These are formative practices done together, not just that we do, but that do something to us. These practices, they were fueled by this insatiable hunger, a hunger to know and worship the risen Christ. I mean, one moment they were all doing their own thing, right? And the next, they're daily in each other's homes, praising God. They are daily in the temple, devoting themselves to, to, to liturgies that continually root them back in the gospel message. So what were these practices? We see in verse 42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, right? The message of Christ that became the New Testament. The scriptures, to the fellowship, which is the general gathering of the saints, the breaking of bread, which refers to the Lord's Supper. And in verse 46, attending the temple and breaking bread in their homes, right, the small group gatherings, not so unlike our gospel communities that we enjoy. So these should look pretty familiar to you, actually. Over the past several weeks, we've been looking at many of these very habits of grace. Prayer, God's word, celebration, Rest. All of these things are formative habits that point our love and our affection towards Christ and his kingdom. And, and listen, while, while practicing these, these habits alone can be really good, and we should do, we see here that what marked the early church was their devotion to doing these things together. There wasn't just a kind of a Jesus and me attitude, Right? It's interesting to notice the phrase, one another, is mentioned 59 times in the New Testament, teaching us how to relate to each other. And, and I mean, it's kind of hard to one another yourself, isn't it? <laughs> we need each other. So could it be that God has designed the communal life of the church to be the training ground for us to grow, to learn, to love, to be more conformed to the image of Christ? This may be hard to hear, but the New Testament gives no category for a lone ranger Christian that's apart from the real flesh and blood, shoulder-to-shoulder life of the church. I want us to see that participation in this Sunday morning gathering and, and the weekly rhythms of gospel community or maybe small group Bible studies or eating in one another's homes, it's not an obligation placed on you, but it's a gift of grace given to you. They're shaping your love for Jesus. They're providing a powerful context for you to grow into the kind of person that God made you to be. So are you giving yourself faithfully to these means of God's grace? And are you doing it with others, right? And if not, what keeps you from these practices? Do we see them as having just minimal importance? See, the practices, these habits of, practicing these habits of grace together are what forms us to be more and more like Jesus Christ. So church, let's give ourselves to these liturgies just like the early church did. So not only do we see the believers giving themselves to these formative communal practices, but there are a number of internal dispositions here that seem to define these, this group of people. And I, I want to just highlight three of them here. Number one, there was a devotion to engage. 
Verse 42 uses, uses the word devoted to describe how they engage this new life together. There's not just this kind of show up and pay my dues kind of mentality, but there's this ardent, this committed choice being made to be fully present in heart and mind, to fully engage in the life of the community. So let me ask you, are you willing to be in this moment, to be in the moment with the people here, listening and engaging empathetically out of love? Are you willing to pursue Christ in community through prayer, through scripture, through worship, with this sense of ardent devotion and wholeheartedness? So number two, there was a generosity to give. Look at verses 45. We we see that they had all things in common and they'd share as any had need. This is just a radical posture of generosity. This open-handedness with their resources. A willingness to share and not cling to their earthly possessions. See, these people recognized that everything they had was a gift from God. And it was meant to be used for the good of others and for God's glory. And listen, it wasn't, it wasn't even about whether the recipient in need was deserving of the gift. Right? Because they, their own hearts had been melted by the, by the radical experience of God's grace towards them when they least deserved it. And our story today is no different. See, the church, the gospel turns you into the kind of person who no longer needs to cling to earthly things, right? But we can be open-handed, be open-hearted in the way you now want to give of your resources to others. So are you willing to open your eyes to the needs of those around you in this community and to give generously, give sacrificially of your time, of your energy, of other resources that you've been so richly blessed with. And the third thing, the third disposition, is a vulnerability to receive. So this next disposition, it might not be be too obvious at first glance. Although these people had a generous disposition to give, they also had this vulnerable disposition to receive. First look, there was an opening of their homes. In verse 46, much of the communal life was, was taking place in people's homes, not just in common spaces, not just in the temple, but in their homes. And people, if the community was meeting daily, opening up their homes daily, I can guarantee you that not everything was always neat and in order, both literally and figuratively. To open up your home, in some sense, is to open up your heart to let others in, to to let others really know you and not just the you that you want others to see. And when we're really honest and we let people into our genuine lives, then it's inevitable that they're also gonna see that we have very real needs. Look at verse 45. It says, Then they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, the proceeds to all as any had need. In order for the community to provide for the need, somebody had to admit that they had a need. And this is a pretty vulnerable place to be. We have to be willing to drop our pride. 
and self-sufficiency and admit when we need help. That we can't always do it on our own. And I'm not just talking about material needs here. God meant for the church to be a place where, as Galatians 6.2, it says, we carry one another's burdens. But first we have to admit that we have burdens and that we can't carry them alone. So how often do you come on a Sunday morning? Or how often do you come to your gospel community with just this smile plastered on your face because you're ashamed to be honest about the mess that you're in. Remember how Adam and Eve, remember how they hid in the garden? They hid, but God came searching after them. Friends, can we let down our guard and can we allow God to pursue us by the means of his hands and his feet here on earth, the body of Christ. Because we will never experience the generosity and the compassion and the kindness of God through his body to the degree that he intended without humbling ourselves, without dropping the fig leaf, coming out of hiding and saying, I need help. And if that's you this morning, I think you'll find that the vulnerable disposition, the vulnerable disposition to receive will be met by a generous disposition to give by this community. So take the risk. In Christ, your identity is secure enough for you to be weak. And so the final theme I want to draw out isn't really explicit in this specific text but it is implicit because of the context. And when you get it, it makes all the practices and all the dispositions we've seen even more astounding. We need to step back and ask who this group of people consisted of. All right, so, so during the, the Jewish feast of Pentecost, people from all over the world came to Jerusalem. We can see a list of just some of the countries and cultures that were represented, okay? Verse, verse 9 of chapter 2. Would you go here with me? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, but skip those, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jew and proselytes, which are non-Jews that have been converted to Judaism, typically from an, like an ancient Greek religion. Cretan and Arabian, these people were different in almost any way you could imagine. From their clothing, their language, the color of their skin, their culture, their temperament, their socioeconomic class. Talk about a recipe for relational conflict. This is what the crowds looked like who heard Peter preach the gospel in Jerusalem. And yet when they heard this gospel message... They were cut to the heart, and instantly the barriers between them were broken. They now had this heart-to-heart communion without barrier. They were in each other's home. They couldn't get enough of each other. You see, society then, just like it, like it is today, it stratifies people into this hierarchy of value and importance. Based on what? Based on class, 
based on race, based on rank, based on education, based on economics, based on a hundred other things. But what the gospel does is it levels the playing fields. When you realize that your primary identity is not in where you come from, not where you land on the, the social ladder of status, not what you do for a career, but rather that I am a citizen of heaven, brought into the family of God by sheer grace, and I'm given an inheritance that no money can buy, then it will change the way you relate to everybody. There's no longer room for pride. There's no longer room for comparison. There's no longer room for insecurity. But there's this welcome embrace of the other. And a church community that's defined by this reality will open up their doors to any and every kind of person because the, because the message of this unity screams, welcome, you have a place here. So my question for you this morning is this. Are you choosing your relationships based merely on some common interest that you have? Or are you embracing those members of our community that seem most different than you because your brothers and your sisters who display God's glory far better together than apart? And could it be that serving and loving those who are different than us actually stretches us and matures us into Christ-likeness in a way that keeping kind of to our own people never could? A loving and a diverse community of Christians testifies to the power of the gospel to break down barriers that in almost every other sphere of society becomes the ground for tension and division. So just to summarize, in, in this prototype of just vibrant Christian community from Acts 2, we, we see these things. We see a commitment to a new set of liturgies, which are communal practices that we said that do something to us, that shape our love for Christ, the habits of grace that we've been talking about week after week. There are new dispositions of devotion, of generosity, of vulnerability. And finally, there's this supernatural unity among them that's been birthed by the gospel. And so I just want to close with this. Christian community is not something we do. It's something that we are. Community is not something that we create. It's something that we receive from God as a gift of his grace, and then we cultivate it or work it into our lives as an act of gratitude and worship. And the ultimate purpose of Christian community is to display God's glory in the world. So look, our passage closes in this way. It says in verse 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. So can you see that everything which defined this community was rooted in love and gratitude for what Jesus did in saving them? And love is the ultimate apologetic for the gospel. Jesus said, he said, by, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. When a hurting world sees a community that's marked by 
love-motivated grace, devotion, generosity, authenticity, and unity, it's going to be drawn in to ask, what do you people have? Because I want in. (laughs) And it's at that point we can point them to the one that makes this all possible by his grace, the Lord Jesus. The church community will serve as this foretaste of heaven. It'll be like a signpost pointing to the coming kingdom of God where every broken relationship will be fully and finally restored. So First City Church, I just want to call us to joyfully accept the call to live into more of who we already are, the family of God, born out of an extravagant grace. Amen.